Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Good morning from Kansas City. Good morning. You're outside. I am outside today. I figured it would, I'd done it before and I would give it a try today. Still a big heat wave going on there? It's a little better. The other day I was at a birth. Uh, I left in the morning. We left around 10. I got in my car and it was 100 degrees. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is not good. Um, so that, that was the worst day and it's been better. It's more like 80s now. But yeah, it's been hot. Santa Barbara, especially. Yeah, for me, it's fun to get out of um, out of California, even for a few days. Uh, you know, I was supposed to be on the road and the beast, but the beast still isn't ready. So, hopefully, by the time this podcast airs, I'll actually be in the beast and I'll be somewhere in Wyoming or Montana. But um, so I flew to Kansas City, and one of the things you don't want to do when you fly to Kansas City is get in around eleven thirty at night. Okay. Because um, there's no cabs and the app to Uber didn't work. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I had to call like three different people that are hosting me and no one responded. Finally, someone responded and they came out and picked me up and took me to oh, my good. hotel. Right. Oh, good. I was like, what did you do? Um, yeah, so I wanna, I'm grateful to the, to the people that helped me out, the person that helped me out. Um, <laughs> Because she got out of bed and drove 30 minutes to get to the airport to pick me up and then take me downtown. So, um, but I spent the day yesterday walking around. I I went to the World War One Museum here, which I think is fantastic. It's not for everybody, obviously, but they did a great job with it. And then last night I went to my first country music concert in my life. Really? Yeah, I got in Luke Bryan. I'm sure a lot of people know who he is. Uh I had no idea, but I just looked up uh, what's happening in, in Kansas City. And that was happening, and it's only four blocks from my hotel at the T-Mobile Center here. So 17,000 people, I think. Nice. Uh, lots of short skirts and cowboy boots and cowboy hats, and it was uh, a fun time. One of the best concerts I've actually been at in a really long time. I didn't know any of the music, but by the end of the by end, by the songs are so repetitive in country that uh-huh. you pick up the lyrics right away, and you start, and you start screaming the lyrics just like everybody else is screaming the lyrics. So... <laughs> I can't, that sounds fun. It was fun. And you know what? Yeah. Talk about a high being the guy on the stage and everyone is singing your music. Mm-hmm. Oh my effing God. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, it was very, it was great. I really was happy about that. And then on one sad note, I heard yesterday that the uh, Queen of England passed away. Yes. You know, she was queen. She was queen before I was born. I mean, she's 94 years old, right? 96, 94. Um, yeah. She lived a very full life. She sure did. And, you know, yeah. she saw a lot of changes um, as yeah. as queen. 70 years as queen. That's uh, that's a long time. So rest in peace. Yeah. Amen. Uh, so anyway, I have a couple follow ups. I know you want to you have some things that you want to talk about today. We you know, you, you wanted to talk a little bit about the light and dark of birth work, I think. So mm-hmm. that's where we'll go. But I got to get up. I got to catch up on current events and things like that first, if that's okay with you. Sure, and I can tell my birth story for this week. Okay. Yeah, I saw you posted a picture. 
So this is a question from Katie on Instagram, and it has to do with um, our question about our, our podcast on herpes. So she says, hi, Dr. Stu, love the podcast. I'm learning so much as my husband and I are on our TTC journey. Now, what does TTC stand for? I didn't know at first, but it's trying to conceive. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And wanted to be prepared and informed as possible. After listening to the episode, my question is, would a baby have to be administered the antibiotic eye goop? Question mark. I had my first outbreak in 2016 and two super minor outbreaks since. The last being a solo lesion that was just annoying only. I want as little intervention as possible, one being the eye goop if it's not actually needed. But since I've had herpes in the past, would that be required, even if on the antibiotic for the last month of pregnancy? Appreciate all you and bliss do. And so I just want to make it clear a couple things. First of all, acyclovir or Valtrex is not an antibiotic. Right. Okay. It's a, it's a medicine. It's antiviral. Uh-huh. Secondly, the erythromycin does nothing for herpes. So it's not indicated to prevent babies getting ophthalmic herpes. It works for chlamydia and gonorrhea, but not for herpes. So and um, in the hospital, you'll hear nurses say a lot that it works for a lot of other things that it it can be helpful if you have GBS and you know that it's a it's an antibiotic that just helps babies in general like like maybe we're dirty or something like that. So I like that you're being specific about its designation um, in regards to this, that that it is for gonorrhea and chlamydia. And if you have been tested and you're in a monogamous relationship, then you can be confident to decline it. That's right. It's not like uh, it's not like 409. It's not an all purpose cleaner. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) Um, So thank you, uh, Katie. I hope that helps. Um, I responded to Katie uh, through Instagram. Here's a here's a thing from uh, Lay Love, uh, also on Instagram that she just got this morning. She says, "Do you know a doctor that can give me a medical exemption for my daughter to exclude all vaccines?" Although she doesn't spell the word, she even on Instagram messaging people don't write the word vaccine. I don't. I wonder if they think they're going to get attacked by somebody in order to attend school. I have never received one in my life. Therefore, I have no idea how my genes would react. And therefore, don't know how my daughters would react. It's just risky. Thank you in advance. I know it's a long shot, but my daughter deserves it. She, yes, she does. So I can't help but ask. And I wrote her back. Sorry, I don't know anyone. Most pediatricians have been brainwashed to believe vaccines are the best thing ever, or they have been cowed into submission for fear of reprisals from their employer or the medical board. So I don't know how you get a exemption anymore, especially if you're in California. I mean, I don't know about other states, but. It's probably hard in those states as well. Any thoughts, Bliss? Um, not that I want to say on the podcast. Oh, you got things that you keep you hold back. <laughs> Tell her to send me a private message. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you t- she just heard that, so she'll send you a okay. private message. Okay. Okay. Nice. Can you send me the answer too later? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I want to know. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> Okay, so uh, this is a, a couple current event updates. Um, as we speak right now, the uh, the California legislative bill um, 2098, the muzzle the physician bill in California, we could call it that, is still on the governor's desk. There's been a campaign to write him letters to tell him to not sign the bill. 
everybody remembers this is a bill that would make doctor's licenses subject to uh, revocation or suspension for speaking misinformation. And we all know the definition of misinformation is just truth that the other side doesn't want to hear. So it's a draconian authoritarian law that it's got to be unconstitutional. Not only is it probably unconstitutional, but it would it would undermine all confidence if there's any left of, of people in California with their physician. Because if your physician is afraid to tell you things or is afraid of being disciplined, why would you trust him on everything else? If he's going to not tell you, give you informed consent on something because he's afraid of losing his license, that undermines the entire purpose of the doctor-patient relationship in my mind. You're nodding. So what do you think? Yes, I agree that we're in a very challenging situation right now where people, I think there are people that really would like to be more open and honest about things and would like to support families more in their choices and um, aren't sure how to navigate that. And I think that we need to continue to exchange ideas. And, you know, I'm proud of the work that we're doing, Stu, because I think that it helps people know that there are other people out there who are not just going along with the status quo, but actually looking for ways to continue to be in integrity with our heart and soul in this work. Um, It's not easy, though. It's definitely not an easy path. Well, what's even... What's just crazy about that, and I think our listeners know this, is that everything that was labeled misinformation for the past two years regarding the um, the jab, okay, everything that was labeled is has is actually true. So doctors will be losing their licenses for telling truth. So when it comes out that what they said was true, are they going to get back pay and an apology from the state medical board? I I, I don't think so. So, I, and, I, and certainly we have a doctor shortage right now. Um, a lot of doctors got laid off because they wouldn't take the vaccine. A lot of doctors my age are retiring early because they just had it. Who's going to want to go to medical school? Who, what kind of person would go to medical school knowing they're going to come out and not be able to speak their truth? Because you know what? You don't make a fortune being a doctor anymore. So if right. anybody's listening who thinks they want to go to medical school, they can get rich. <laughs> You know, go into tech, go into be a plumber, you know, plumber or welder. They make a hell of a lot more money than most doctors do these days. So and they don't have all the training and liability and they and they they start working when they're 22, not when they're, you know, 32. So you got 10 extra years. By the time I finished residency, if I started being a plumber or being a sanitation engineer uh, at age 18, Uh I would have been able to own a house. And have no debt by the time I'm 30, as opposed to people coming out now who have immense debt, maybe will never own a house, and uh, delayed their family, delayed their life all that time for for them to be told how to speak. Oh, I love that morning dove. Did you hear that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just listen for a second. God, that's so cool. I love that. Um, (laughs) On that note, Lawrence Huntoon, who is like the former, uh, I think he's one of the founders of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, wrote this this little quote. He said, when the chains of bureaucracy obstruct the physician's ability to care for patients appropriately, 
The physician has an ethical duty to discard the chains and escape, to be free to practice according to the physician's best clinical judgment, as opposed to the substituted judgment and whims of arrogant bureaucrats. So yeah. good for you, Hunter. Yeah. Hunter uh, Lawrence, excuse me, Hunter, Dr. Huntoon. Sorry. <laughs> oh no, I said Hunter. Oh my God. All right. So you want to hear a, my birth story? Yeah, if you want to. I mean, it, does it think it fits right in the middle of all, all this absurdity? Or can I can I go through a couple more absurdities? Sure. Okay. Go for it. Well, let's do one more absurdity and then and then we'll hear a birth story because that's a good variety there. It's, it's scary because the White House now has a monkeypox coordinator and it also has a COVID coordinator. Now, I'm not sure at this point we need more coordinators. <laughs> and certainly, I think monkeypox has killed one person in the United States and we need a coordinator for that. Mm. So it seems more like posturing than anything normal. but. But there's a quote from the from a guy named Dr. Ashish K. Jha, who's the White House coordinator. And he says, the collapse of demand for the mRNA COVID shot seems to have driven some vaccine fanatics around the bend. That's not a quote. What he says is, he says, quote, I really believe this is why God gave us two arms, one for the flu shot and another one for the COVID shot. This is the guy. This is the guy that's leading uh, the COVID task force and stuff in Washington. Okay. Oh my God! Thank you for um. Thank you for sharing that. That was a good laugh. Well, this is from Alex Berenson, who does a lot of good research into the vaccine, uh, and he, so he's been vilified for it and banned from YouTube and all that stuff, which gives him more street cred with me for sure. Uh huh. But he says he, he says which raises the question: Why didn't he give us three arms? <laughs> What happens if Moderna can somehow jam an RSV jab, respiratory syncytial virus jab, through the Food and Drug Administration? That's probably coming next. So um, anyway, that's just, I think that's pretty funny. Pretty absurd. All right, let's hear a birth story. All right. Well, I hadn't had a birth, you know, neither one of us have been at a birth for a little bit. So um, it's, uh, I like telling birth stories on our podcast. Um, so this mama had had a, her first birth in the hospital here in Santa Barbara um, with a doctor that I do like and respect here, um, but had had a, a, you know, not a traumatizing experience, but definitely one of those experiences where, you know, a lot of shit went down. Uh, the baby needed some, some resuscitation. Um, she had a bleed, um, you know, things that the dad is an EMT. So, you know, when they first interviewed with me, he had a lot of questions about how I would handle complications like that if they happened at home. And I, you know, tried to reassure them that every situation is different. And um, sometimes that those things are caused at the hospital, you know, whether it's the provider specific or whether it's just the environment in general, you know, that elicits fear and um, interrupts the process of postpartum, the early postpartum moments that I've talked about a lot. Um, so, you know, you go forward in the experience and you uh, have to just walk the journey of seeing how the birth unfolds. And one of the things that, you know, uh, I don't remember what you were just talking about, but it reminded me of the beginning of her story, which is last time she went to 42 weeks. And so here we are, you know, she's post dates again, and we're up against that law, um, that 
really frustrates me. And, you know, she went to get a post-date test and everything looked great. And he had been getting a lot of pressure from his coworkers every time he'd go in, where's your baby? How come you guys haven't had a baby yet? What are you doing doing a home birth? You guys should be in the hospital, you know, this whole thing. So I I know it well. I know it well. Yeah. And he said, you're right. Next time I shouldn't tell people the two dates. We should have just said sometime in September. And I was like, yeah, you know, hindsight's 2020. But anybody who's listening to this, who's trying to conceive, don't tell anybody about your due date because you will get pressure. And, you know, he was already stretching his, his perspective and like really wanting to lean into this experience and trusting and being there to support her. And then he goes into work every day and gets all this pressure from his coworkers. And you know, he'd come back and holding on to that, that feeling would be like, what's going on? Are you feeling anything? And she's starting now to feel the pressure, right? Even though as her, um, as her practitioner, I wasn't pressuring them at all, you know, trying actually between 40 and 41 weeks, my counseling is always the same, which is don't stress this week, everything that you should facilitating oxytocin. So have a good time, enjoy yourself, relax, do fun things, have sex, eat ice cream, watch funny movies. And anybody who's stressing you out, make them just go away for a week, you know? So she, shouldn't that, shouldn't that be the rule through the entire pregnancy though? Of course, yes. of course. But you know, at 40 weeks, once the date passes, everybody looks at me and is like, okay, what are we going to do now? And this wasn't, this is the thing that I want to let you guys know is that this wasn't how things were managed before this law started in 2014. And all of this pressure for this date and taking, you know, talking about taking away our autonomy, you know, midwives used to just support people to have their babies when they came. And, you know, if there was a reason that they believed that things weren't going well, like if we did post-date testing or, you know, the mom wasn't feeling as much movement or there were, you know, instincts or different things that were going on, then Maybe we would to help meddle in the situation, but most of the time we just had a baby when we had a baby, you know? And so this law has been really frustrating to watch. And I went to her visit and I've done, I've been here a million times, you know, where she, well, maybe not a million, but, um, but she was crying, you know, and she's stressed out and feeling anxious and, And I said, is it about the birth? Are you, you know, instinctually, are you worried about your baby? Do you think something's going on? And she was like, no, I'm just worried that I'm going to get to 42 weeks again and I'm going to have to go into the hospital. And so we looked at her dates again and I had notes in there from, um, from she had, they had changed her date with the early ultrasound versus when she believes that she conceived and what her last menstrual period was. So we had a little bit of wiggle room based on those discrepancies and so I was like, you know, we're good. Do another post-dates test next week, you know, blah, blah, blah. If we need to, we'll start to do some natural induction stuff. We have a lot of tools. And then I believe that was Friday. And um, Sunday morning, she went into Sunday night, she went into labor naturally, and which was great, you know, that we didn't have to continue to, to walk on this um, stressful path together. And, but the funny thing is, is that here she is, she's way post-dates, she's waiting for her baby. This has been the topic of conversation and she starts to have, you know, probably contractions that she's feeling in her back. And so she tells her mom and her husband, she's like, I think something's going on with my kidney. Like, I think I might have a kidney infection. And she said, her mom was like, uh, yeah, 
probably not a kidney infection. Um, but it's so funny how our mind can do that. So she labored by herself in the middle of the night for like four hours thinking that it wasn't it and it wasn't time. And finally she woke up her husband and they called me and we went over, you know, with someone who's a second time mama. I, I don't like to wait, you know, the doula texted me and said, Hey, are you getting the messages? And I said, yeah, I'm going to head over. So I went over and, you know, normal labor, she gets in the water, she's ready to get into the water. We get the tub filled up and everything's set and we're all there. And interestingly enough, uh, we have some D cells between 70 and 80 in the water as she's starting to get the instinct to push. So I changed positions and it wasn't a, like a, wasn't one of those D cells that goes down and comes back up. It was like one of those D cells probably like stayed around 90, like, you know, that sound you're like, ah, oh, shit. And, um, but she's a multip. And so I'm like, okay, she's probably going to get this baby out pretty fast, but this is, definitely how I managed this birth is not how I normally manage, um, you know, normal physiologic birth. So I'm always looking and questioning, like, was this, was all of this necessary, but you know, felt like it was. So we changed positions, heart rate stayed down. And I said, okay, sweetie, we're going to, we're going to get your baby out. So I put my fingers inside and kind of directed her where to push. Like we do sometimes, um, with prime apps and, um, the baby wasn't right there. You know how sometimes you put your fingers inside and the baby is like right there. You have to kind of like wedge between the head and the perineum. Well, it wasn't, it was a little further up and I was like, okay, push. And the baby came down. And then in the next, I would say the next push, the baby was crowning, got baby's head out. Thank God for multi thank God for multips. <laughs> thank God for multips. Went in to check to see like maybe it was the cord that was having, you know, that compression. So I, I released the cord from around the neck. She pushes again, baby's not coming. And I was like, are we gonna, are we gonna be dealing with a dystocia now? You know? And so I asked her to push again, baby's not coming. So I just I just did a little bit of like support around underneath the arms to kind of wiggle. And the baby came through to the umbilicus, which is also not very normal. Like once the baby you know, is pushed, the body is out, then it comes out. But um, and so I was like, oh, okay. So she pushed again, baby came out, bring baby to chest, go to tone, not very good. Baby's not making any, uh, sound. So I go to check for the cord, cord completely flaccid, <laughs> like nothing in the cord at all at that point. So I take a look at the baby again and I looked at them and I said, I'm going to give your baby a breath or two. And they were like, okay, gave a bliss kiss. And baby came right around. I looked at baby again, like, cause normally Karen Strange will say, give at least three breaths. Mm -hmm. And I was like, heard her in my head. And I thought, this baby is screaming. <laughs> I don't need to give this baby any more breaths. It would be really weird, you know, to like breathe into a baby's face that's already crying. So um, I gave baby back to mom and the dad later on said that because he's an EMT, you know, he goes, that mouth to mouth is badass. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, thanks. Um, but yeah, it was one of those that like, you know, there's no reason to expect that that would have happened, but it did. And their doula was the same doula for the last birth. And she said, that's exactly the same, exact same thing that happened last time. So I don't, I don't know something about her anatomy, maybe that's just a real tight squeeze. Um, and how big was the babe? Not that, not big, yeah. 7-Eleven. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It definitely wasn't having anything to do with size. And, and the, the, um, the didn't want to come of, out. You just wanted the to stay in there. For me though, is that the baby came out halfway, you know what I mean? So that makes me think that there's some, there was something there. So anyways, that was the birth story of this week. And, um, they're, they're doing great. They're totally ecstatic about their choice to have a home birth and, um, they're resting and recovering. Well, you must be a powerful kisser, Bliss. <laughs> that I am. <laughs> that's a, that, that's, a, that's a, uh, a great story. One of the lessons to learn in that for other states that are looking at midwifery laws and stuff like that, I know you probably have no power, but if you can negotiate away the 42-week rule, you'll be doing you and your all the clients you have in the future a favor. Because as you said, up until 2014 in California, really think about it. it wasn't really an issue suddenly now it becomes an issue for the midwives which then pat gets obviously passed on to the clients through the midwives and now you have everybody who's having a home birth worried from you know 24 weeks on will i go overdue and what will happen if i go overdue and do i have to consult with you know i used to be on the couch person when i was around so there was always that as a backup but it cost them money to do that yeah so oh, not i'm worth it yeah, but not everybody has that kind of money. <laughs> That's true. That is absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, th- yeah, it's good to have a birth story and it's good to have a good birth story. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's great. So I have a letter to read that ties into something I got from the state of California and a project that I think I'm going to be working on with two lawyers. Uh, one is Greg Glazer from Physicians for Informed Consent and one is Hermine Hayes Klein, who we all know, a friend of the podcast. And I'm going to be meeting with them later in the month on a Zoom meeting about this topic uh, because it's, it's something that you and I have seen so prevalent recently. So let me just read this letter. Hi, Dr. Stu. Uh, I know this is a reach, especially on a holiday weekend, but would you happen to know any pediatricians who are allowed privileges at Northridge Hospital? I had a home birth transfer on Sunday and they're holding my baby hostage in the NICU. Yeah. After days of fighting for breast milk versus formula, skin to skin, and all the other basic necessities, He has literally been given a ticket of perfect health and has gained 7.3% of his body weight in addition to a minor weight loss at birth. So he's lost his weight, he's back up, and he's up 7% over his birth weight. The NICU has refused to discharge him and have given given us no definitive timeline of when he will be released. Despite my husband and I attending every feeding of his and meeting with all the nurses who are in agreement that he should be allowed home. So I I wrote to her and I said, Dear Lauren, who's her name, I am so sorry to hear another story of this cruelty. I do not know pediatricians with hospital privileges pretty much anywhere anymore. Mm -hmm. All I can say is be sure to document everything they say, including recording openly if possible. She said to try and find a pediatrician to come for a second opinion or who is willing to take the baby as a transfer and then discharge. She says, I've already filed a formal grievance with the insurance and with the hospital, the director of neonatology and the NICU. I also started a case file with the social worker and patient advocate, but none of this is getting my son out sooner. Other than hiring a lawyer with human rights experience, I really don't know what to do in these cases. They have all the power and are abusive of it because in their model, they believe they know and care more than you, and they cannot see outside their box, which is one of the things that I say all the time. Yes, I literally had the nurse tell me, quote, there's your opinion, and then there's the medical opinion, unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's restricted to 30 milliliters per feeding. 
but he's still starving after 30 milliliters and wants more food. But they won't let me top him off with breastfeeding because their, quote, orders, unquote, are to stick to 30 milliliters. I guess I can say this, just fucking bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I agree. I'm I'm so sad this is traumatic. In a different light, I want to come back as a crusading attorney and hold these individuals who regurgitate mindless garbage accountably personally, which is one of my crusades too, is to not let people hide behind their institution and stuff like that. When people do stupid stuff, they can't, they, they shouldn't, if, if, you're a, if you're a government worker and you do something mean, you, you, you're never sued personally. You, 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 you're, you can sue the government, but that's fool's errand generally. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you can never sue people personally for being vindictive or mean. You know, I'm not sure being stupid is a actionable cause, but maybe we should try to create law, which is why I'm going to meet with uh, Mr. Glazer and and Hermine in a couple of weeks to talk about what we can possibly do and maybe try to get something going on in all 50 states where we have a hotline. I love it. Because I this is, you know, I think, I think, yeah, I think every week now for the last three, four weeks, we've been reading a letter mm-hmm. sort of similar to that. Yeah. But dad last week that called 911. Yeah, we had that. We had had the one guy where he said, well, I work for Child Protective Services. Yeah, that was the same guy. Oh, that was the same one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. So this is from from an advocacy group in California called Bridges, Building Bridges in Children's Health. And it relates to that letter, which is why I'm bringing it up. It says, healthcare providers should not resort to threats of making Child Protective Service report in order to coerce consent to a medical procedure or treatment. Yeah. All medical procedures carry some risk, and parents are entitled either to have their consensus adequately addressed or to seek a second opinion. A threat of child protective services report by a healthcare provider imposes duress and may cause trauma to the well-being of the family and the child, resulting in a negative pushback, substantially impairing the doctor-patient relationship, and causing mistrust of the medical system. You think? <laughs> Okay, from the American Medical Association, which again, oh, it's from their code of ethics, which I I do respect their code of ethics. I re- I have very little respect for the organization as it as it stands now because um, they do not represent patients or doctors. Um, they represent corporate um, corporate medicine and academia um, and making profits for themselves. Uh, but this is from the ethic code of ethics: decisions for pediatric patients should be based on the child's best interest, which is determined by weighing many factors, including effectiveness of appropriate medical therapies and the needs and interests of the patient and the family as the source of support and care of the, for the patient. When there is legitimate inability to reach consensus about what is in the best interest of the child, the wishes of the parents slash guardian should generally receive preference. So people who are listening, if you have this issue, you can quote them. AMA code of ethics, it won't help you any because these people who are in the NICU are so obtuse. It also says that any person who makes a report of child abuse or neglect known to be false or with reckless disregard of the truth or falsity of the report is liable for any damages caused. So if, if the NICU or somebody reports you to Child Protective Services because they're just being mean, that's actionable. You can go after them for that. A healthcare provider who threatens to make a CPS report in order to coerce consent to a medical procedure or who makes such a report in bad faith may be reported to the applicable licensing board for unprofessional conduct. 
a parent in a parent's informed decision to decline a medical procedure for the child does not fall under the definition of child abuse or neglect under California state law. Examples may include preventative or prophylactic procedures such as vaccination or vitamin K. A parent may decline medical treatments for the child for religious reasons. Okay. These are all things that are in California law, and yet we see them violated all the time in these NICU stories that we see. I mean, we don't know why that baby was put in the NICU in the first place, but it sounds to me, based on just experience and intuition, that it was probably a hospital policy. I don't know, because she was a home birth transfer or whatever. I mean, I don't, it doesn't sound like, I think Lauren would have said that the baby had this problem at the beginning or whatever. But for whatever reason, this tyranny just has to stop. Yeah, I agree. And hopefully we can have advocates that can, you know, support people if they're in that situation so that they can say, fine, call Child Protective Services. I'm going home against medical advice. And here is the person that represents me. You can have contact them and just be done with it, you know? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, when you listen to the, these people in the NICU talk like that, there's your your opinion and there's the medical opinion or 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 you listen to the uh, the covid coordinator from the white house saying things like that's why god gave us two arms you wonder what's the re the real question is do they believe what they say yes. or do they know that they're lying and no i think that i think they believe it i think i think people have this mindset like like uh the medical system is some kind of, you know, righteous divinity, which I've said this so many times, like, you know, the Western way of looking at health, for one thing, has so many things wrong with it. But also, it's not the only way of looking at health. It's one perspective. And so to start to like bully people and act like, you're being irresponsible or that you don't care about your child or you're negligent or any of that is, um, it's just so egotistical, really. Like that really is what it is. It's, it, it, that's not the only way of looking at things. And so to put another human being into this box and say, you know, this is your opinion or the medical system. Well, yeah, it is. And I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. And so then you have to say that it's a religious belief. Okay. You know what I but think? It, I think, really I think it's almost to me that the people who say, the nurses and the doctors who say things like that, that it's your opinion, the medical opinion, they're the ones with a religious belief. But their religion, yeah. their religion is the medical model. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. oh, because, the, because it's uberalis. It's the medical model uberalis, which means overall. Uh, I like that word. Oh, it's German, <laughs> but, like it. but it's, it, it means, uh, you know, that this over everything else and, um, and yeah, it is almost a cult. Yeah. It's infuriating to me. All right. Well, speaking of, uh, just stupid stuff, more stupid stuff. I was watching, um, a Netflix TV series. I think it was a limited series. I think it had six episodes. Something it was called keep, it was called keep breathing. And it started oh, yeah, out really, what? I saw it. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. I thought it started out, the first couple episodes were really good. Then I thought it kind of got a little bit boring and, uh -huh. and weird. And then the ending was really weird. So I only gave it a 70% on the the <laughs> Birthing Instincts Rotten Tomato. Uh, I thought it was, um, I thought it might um, appeal more to women. That's well, I like, I, the, I like the plane crash and the survival stuff. That was my stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, nonetheless, 
Um, there are flashbacks where she's, they show her at being early pregnant and she's going to see a, a doctor. <laughs> you know, it's a classic stereotype. I mean, it's a, 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 a young Asian woman doctor, mm-hmm. right? Which is classic TV stereotype for, for a doctor. But anyway, the doctor's giving her advice when she's like six, seven weeks pregnant. And she says, avoid soft cheese, fresh juice, shellfish, cookie dough, sushi, deli meat, unwashed fruit, vegetables, alcohol, drink only filtered water. Okay. I mean, this is like the medical advisor we're talking about on other shows where they, where they do, they say like on a game of Thrones or, or in the, in that movie, August rush, where they have a turn of like a, 35-week baby in a car accident, they show an ultrasound of a 20-week baby. Why do they why do they do that sort of thing? Do you really need to avoid all these things in the modern Western world? I'm do asking. you? <laughs> I would say no. I wouldn't avoid I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't avoid any of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that is the common consensus. But they need they need um alcohol need, maybe. I would avoid. But they yeah. need medical um advisors who maybe think outside of the box a little bit more. Like us. Yeah, so I'm putting us out there to Hollywood. Um, yes. Liz and I are starting a new service, a consulting service. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. I mean, uh, yeah, we'll consult and we'll give you honest, you know, down to earth practical advice outside of the box. That would be great to disseminate to the to the mainstream, you know? Okay, so two more quick things and then we have a commercial and then we're going to get into uh some happy some good stories and some dark stories, right? Okay. Okay. So this is take two seconds. This, uh, I, uh, I'm applying for license in other States and one of them is Indiana. Uh, there's a group of midwives there that wants me to be supportive of them. And so I said, why not? And so it's, it says I had to do a uh, thing. I had to get fingerprinted here in Los Angeles and I had to mail it to them officially. And it says, please note due to COVID-19, we are taking the precautionary measure to quarantine all incoming mail for one day before we we begin our card scan processing step. Have you ever heard of such a thing? No, that's a new one. At this point in, in the COVID-19 process, we're, they're still quarantining mail. I never even heard of it when, we, when it was a scary thing. Isn't that, it's, it's just amazing to me that, that they're, they're quarantining the mail for a day. <laughs> like, it's, like, it's like anthrax. Well, it's already been in the mail for four or five days. So are they thinking the mailman has COVID? <laughs> what what are they thinking? I, I mean, even if I spent extra money, it would still take three, four days to get there. By regular mail, sometimes it's taking a week to 10 days these days. So, yeah. yeah I mean, how long can COVID live on an envelope? I'm just curious. We don't know, <laughs> unfortunately. God, it's so crazy. Okay. And then the last thing um, I wanted to talk about was uh, real briefly, because I don't want to give this guy any credit. There's a guy who was on TikTok named Dr. Kevin. And Dr. Kevin was very similar to Dr. Al-Ramani in his excitement over inducing everyone at 39 weeks. Oh, boy. And rather than counter every single point he had, if anyone saw that, there's a couple things that you can do. You can go to my website on my blog page and find the blog that says, that's called Creating More Questions and Answers, where I talk about some of that. You can also find um, that, uh, I think, Hensi Goer, um, I hope I'm saying her name correctly. Am mm-hmm, I saying yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, she wrote a thing in science and sensibility mm-hmm. on the arrive trial as well. So there's a lot of good evidence out there that helps you refute people who are pu- pushing the arrive trial in your face and saying, look at this. We lowered the C-section rate from 22% to 18%. By the way, 
where in the country does anybody have a C-section rate of 22% or 18%? So that's one of the questions I raise in my blog is how do they get a C-section rate so low in the first place? And maybe they were trying way too hard to get people to deliver vaginally, which is why their hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy rate in their study was twice the norm. Uh, so read, read, go to creating more questions and answers on my blog and tell Dr. Kevin to go stuff it. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Kevin. Oh my God. All right. Um, I think Dr. Stu's a better moniker than Dr. Kevin. What do you think? Hello. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh, I agree. I, that's why I love you so much, Bliss. You know what else <laughs> I love? I love Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the? BS. I caught you in the middle of a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, none of the BS. Uh, it comes in multiple flavors. Uh, my favorite is raspberry. Your, your favorite is mango chili. But people know the flavors by now. And, you know, it comes in. I don't even have the thing because I'm traveling, so I don't have the list of flavors. But they're really great flavors. And it's great for uh, laboring women. And it's great for birth workers and people in the hot weather. And anybody, you know, it's really a good substitute for the crappy stuff that a lot of us drink. And I really would encourage people to do it. It's, it's eco-sensitive because it doesn't come in bottles. It comes in tiny little packets. Um, you don't have to be, I, like I said, I don't use the whole packet, but this likes to use the whole packet in a, in a uh, 16 ounces of water. Um, but it's very tasty and it's good. And it's, it's quenching your thirst, especially if you've been out for a hike or you're sweating. Uh, to carry that in your water bottle instead of instead of water, and certainly uh, better than having Kool Aid or Gatorade or Diet Coke. So, um, if you go yeah. to their website, drinkelement.com, that's drinkelement.com, and put in the code word "birthing instincts" for what. Anytime you make an order, you'll get a free sample pack from them, and I hope you support Element uh, because they support us and make the podcast possible. Thanks, Element. Thank you, Element. Okay. I love when the music goes. <laughs> okay. So I've got, I've got um, three letters to read that are good stories. So let's talk with the first one's from Jackie. And Jackie says she's from, uh, Jackie is from Earthside Midwifery. So anybody following on Instagram, that's Earthside Midwifery. I attended my first twin birth yesterday, exclamation point. My client, a second-time mama, learned she was having twins at her 20-week anatomy scan. I have zero experience with twins. <laughs> Therefore, I referred her to a midwife who had experience with twins, and she requested I attend as an assistant. I was excited for the opportunity to learn. I love that enthusiasm in midwives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm here in Kansas City teaching, starting tomorrow, I'm teaching a two-day course on my breach and twins. And I, I love teaching because people, the midwives there, uh, every now and then a doctor, but mostly midwives are just so enthusiastic about learning. They get so excited. Yes. So yesterday morning around 4 a.m., I got a call from the primary midwife. The mom was in labor and moving fast. I ended up being the first one to get there. And about nine minutes later, I caught baby A before anyone else arrived. Baby B came 15 minutes later after the primary midwife arrived. Placenta was birthed 45 minutes later. It was so normal. Just yeah. an extra baby. Yeah, exactly. Just an extra baby. <laughs> yeah, it's just having a baby and then having another baby. Right. Exactly. Well, anyways, thank you for normalizing this process. Now, it isn't always like that, and we know that, but we don't have to live in complete fear when when the diagnosis of twins is made. It is a variation of normal, just like a breech baby. 
I don't know. I don't know you, but I have listened to you for a long time and felt that what you have shared over the years encouraged me and removed much of the culture-induced fear around twin birth in a community setting. Yay. Thank you. Yay. Okay, so that's that. Love that. And uh, I have. Wait. Uh, wait. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what we we you and I talked in the middle of the week, and um, you asked me if I wanted to share a little bit about what was going on in my world, and that's where this topic came from. So, I wanted to kind of just get into it a little, little bit, and then I felt like um, we could balance out some of the good stories with some of the harder things that we have to do sometimes because it's nice to hear all the good stories. It's fun. We love it. But the reality is that we all know is that there are some hard things that happen sometimes too. And part of our work is holding both. And I think part of being human and being a good fellow human to the people in our lives, the uh, capability of being able to hold both. And on that note, you have been a person in my life who has been able to hold both for me. So I want to thank you again for who you are in my life. Besides just my, my co-host for the podcast, you're my friend and you've, you know, you've walked some hard days with me. So as many of you know, um, my daughter was, um, a victim of a violent crime in 2019. She was shot and killed, um, November, 18th, uh, 2019. So right before the pandemic. <laughs> um, and, uh, so there are two men that are, um, being held, uh, until trial that were found, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks after the shooting. And, um, so because of COVID and because of, you know, we talk about the medical system as being something that is broken, but the justice system and our political systems are also very broken. And um, so they haven't tried many cases at all because of COVID. So um, there's a potential that I am going to be attending a murder trial, which is an intense thing to think about. You know, not only is it um, a lot to lose my daughter and have to process all of that. But then to think about going back into Los Angeles and being part of the trial is um, definitely something that has been a little overwhelming for me to think of. So I've just kind of put it off because it wasn't something that I needed to address right away, but it's gotten to the point where we're needing to address it. So um, this week, they, um, the district attorney got on the phone with my family and discussed their plea. What do they call it? Like a, a deal. Plea bargain. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I guess it's my job at this point to kind of like learn about all of this stuff. But it's emotionally, it's so overwhelming. And because I'm the mom, you know, a lot of people are looking to me to make a decision about how I feel about all of this. But, you know, the reality is, is it's not going to do anything to bring her back. Right. So it's just, it's a really, it's a really hard thing to think about. Like, do I want to just have them make this offer? Although I don't know that I'm the ultimate decision maker, but I do have an opinion in the whole thing that, you know, they're asking my opinion. Um, or do I want, to go to trial, you know? And so that's a decision that I've been having to think about this week. And um, Stu just thought 
it might be something that everybody was would be interested in hearing about my experience because they care about me. So that that is the beginning of the conversation. And I I um I had some I had some more difficult stories that came into my my world through, you know, I think a lot of people were getting more um listenership and more fellow travelers. And so I think we're getting more people from around the world that are reaching out to us. And I think because of who I am on the podcast and and the experiences that I've had, you know, the potential of having people feel safe to be able to share some of the harder stories with me comes through. And I'm honored to be able to hold that space. Um, But it is, it is the more difficult part of, of the work that we do. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sorry. I get choked up when you talk about this sort of thing, and I, I'm choked up too. I guess <laughs> right. And, and I, I'm 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 humbled to be in your presence. The way you, the dignity that you have when you discuss these sorts of things, because I know that I don't know. Well, I don't. It doesn't make any sense. I know that I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know how I would handle it if such a thing happened. I yeah. mean, my, my, you know, I have a daughter. Who's, yes slightly older than sky would have been yes and when she calls me to tell me about you know a fight she had with her boyfriend or something like that it it break it breaks my heart i can't even imagine her not calling me to tell me about these things because she's not here anymore yeah so yeah. you know i know that this we're not talking about the plea bargain or anything like that but you know you're in a it's a tough situation for people that are listening because Los Angeles has a district attorney right now who is like the worst. And I don't know if this has anything to do with your case or not, but you know, the criminals are victims in his mind. So yeah, I don't know where that's going to go. And if you want to say, say more right now, or do you want to discuss about the case? No, I, I, I don't. I think it's just um, part of, you know, as people, you know, hold me and their thoughts, you know, to just know that it's, it is part of something that I'm having to process and think about. So, so I posted something on Instagram this week that I was taught, you know, this is something because people, you know, birth workers oftentimes will reach out to me as we're talking about the mentorship. And I think I'm sure you can relate to this too, is that if there's a bad outcome, whether it's, you know, a baby is lost or, you know, there's just something traumatic that happens during the birth, we feel responsible in some ways. And I think we look back and we reevaluate the things that we did and the choices that we made and how we supported this family. And so, you know, Sky and my experience with being her mom often comes through in that counseling. And I share with people about the fact that, you know, in order to come to some form of acceptance for me in my belief system, I believe that, you know, as souls, we come into our bodies and we have a path that we walk. And some of our paths are shorter than others. Our journey, the lessons that we have to live are shorter than others. So when I'm talking and counseling these birth workers, I remind them, you know, that we're not God. Um, that we are there to walk this journey with this family, but that these babies have their own path 
you know, and these moms have their own path and we don't have control over everything that happens. But there was a a post from Trusting Birth that I posted similar to this that I wanted to read. And it says, some baby souls touch their mother's body and then go back to the space of light. Some touch for 40 weeks, 10 or 30, whatever is needed for their soul to complete their contract. And you know, that's how I feel about Sky. She touched my life for 18 years. And then she, you know, moved on and it's helped me have some peace around her not being in her physical form with me anymore. You know, it just gives me some peace. And I think that it, it helps, um, some birth workers as well. And maybe moms, you know, as well to be able to, um, think about it in that way. So it's may not, fit for everybody, but it's a a little bit of wisdom that I try and help share with people. And I had a, um, I had a conversation with a woman, um, who I did ask permission to share this. I'm going to share a little bit of her story, but not everything, um, who, who hired me to do some mentoring and, um, she was supporting a woman and, um, lost track of her. This woman had a very, very difficult life. She was a, um, She was a refugee. She was um, in an abusive relationship. She had a bunch of health issues having to do with like sexually transmitted diseases. You know, her life was difficult. And this midwife was there and was supporting her postpartum and was there holding the baby and connecting with the baby many weeks after the delivery and then um, lost touch with this mom and found out later that the mom had killed her own baby. And she was having a lot of grief, this, this midwife around not having done enough to save this baby. And that was the conversation that we had. And I shared with her because she's a fellow uh, traveler. So she, she knew about Sky. And so we talked a little bit about what I just shared. And um, I wanted to read you a little bit about um, from the letter that she sent me with her permission, of course. She says, I want to thank you deeply for our conversation. I had no idea, really, expectations. And before our talk, I was like, why am I doing this? I really liked your questions and how you navigated through the mentoring and the meditation and connecting to Mother Earth and letting me relax to have faith in the dialogue. By speaking about the death of your daughter and sharing your experiences, I was confronted with my deepest fears. We have quite a lot of children's death in our family. After we talked, I felt very shameful because I had lots of talks to God. Please protect my daughter from everything. What could do harm to her? In my deepest feelings, I was also swearing to God, if my daughter leaves, I will also leave. If she will be hurt and so on. Very negative and destructive. The answer I got was always love. After our conversation, I felt humble and stupid, but deep fears in my heart changed too. I need to honor life every day. I talked to a friend about our mentorship and how I was ashamed about my destructiveness when it comes to my own deep fears. And then he was telling me about his colleague who lost her son when he was 19 due to an accident. My friend thought his colleague would get crazy. She would go to work every single day, surprisingly for him. She got stronger and more positive to life again, short after the death of her son. What she said to him was, I will enjoy life for my son. Today, she says she keeps um, contact with the colleagues and goes to invitations to celebrate life. Exactly in this moment, when I listen to 
I will enjoy life for my son. The baby I told you about appeared to me. She smiled and said, enjoy life. Our conversation had a deep impact on me. What can I say? She smiles now and I only feel love. Thank you, Bliss. So I, you know, I know that those stories are not easy to listen to. And I know we'd love to always talk about the feel good stories. But I think it's also important for us to know that when we have these difficult life experiences, that it gives us the capacity, especially I feel, especially as birth workers or people who are in service to be able to really have compassion and the ability to hold these really difficult conversations for people um, and, and give space to a dialogue that maybe they don't feel like they can talk to everybody about, you know, that they're holding on to within themselves. So I just, I feel honored that, you know, in the middle of the conversation with her, I was like, God, this is so intense. I really hope I can make a difference for her. And to get those words back, knowing that the pain that I am feeling can actually serve other people and make a difference for other people makes it a little lighter. And it makes my daughter's leaving, you know, her soul's journey, I, it gives me the context to know that it's contributing in a more positive way as well. What you're doing is so necessary. And I don't know anyone who could do it better than you. Uh, I don't know how you read those things without choking. I mean, I mean, I, I gag and I choke when I read those sorts of things and you were able to get through it, but no one does this better than you. And wouldn't the world be a better place if, if we had the time and and space for everyone to have some sort of access like this? Would we have such mean things going on at the hospital? Or would we have neighbors fighting with neighbors? Or would we have family members, what do you call it, uh, ghosting other family members uh, over silly things like politics or vaccine status or what? I mean, all we can do is what we can do in our little environment, you and I. Yeah. Reach out to other people. But when I, when I, hear like a nurse say something really mean to a, to a parent who's got a baby in the NICU. Yeah. You wonder what is going on in that nurse's life? How could you even think like that? How are you, where is your self-awareness? Where is your empathy? Compassion. And it's, and it's beaten out of people because the system just beats it out of people. Yeah. And the, and the system just leads people to be angry and, and uh, withdrawn and, and what you're doing for these mentees. Well, there's no price you can put upon it. It's, uh, I can't think of the word now. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the word that I want to come That's up with. Okay. But it, and, it's okay. And, and for the families, you know, I had a mom come in yesterday who had sexual abuse. She was, you know, multiple times in her life, she was sexually abused and had addiction issues and, you know, all of this stuff. And, and her husband didn't want to make the drive because they live about an hour and a half from me. And she made a decision already that, it was worth to drive to me because she knows the work that I do. And after he sat with us for a while, she's like, I don't want to go and interview other midwives. I don't want to go and tell my story again. This feels right for me, you know? And he got it. She's like, pay her. (laughs) We're going to, we're going to drive here. This is worth it for me. And I understood that as, as someone who's lived through trauma, like once you find somebody that you feel safe with, that you can share your whole self, you're right. That is invaluable, you know? And so it's not just for the birth workers. It's also for the, the, the families and, you know, the world that we live in right now, 
there's a lot of trauma. It's not just about sexual trauma. It's about like taking your kid to get vaccinated and, and being shamed and fear mongered for that, not being able to take your kids to public school, losing family members, you know, like all, we, we're all going through a lot of trauma. So having people that can hold space for our true heart and our true feelings about what's going on, the light and the dark, you know, we have to be able to, um, not we have to, there is something available when we are able to hold space for all of it. And as we know, people shy away from grief and hard things. It's intense for them and they don't, they don't stand, move forward into it. Like a firefighter goes into a fire, right? Like us as birth workers, like we need to be able to lean into these moments and open our heart and sit with these people and allow them to connect with us. It's not just about the medical part. It's about so much more that we can be available for. So thank you for yeah. giving me space, Stu, to talk about this today because it's not easy, but I think it is really important. Well, it's your podcast. <laughs> it's our podcast. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was uh, have another. Having... Go ahead. No, I was going to say I was having drinks with uh, somebody here in Kansas City uh, after the the Luke Bryan concert. And we, we got into talking a little bit about what you're just talking about, about, about the trauma that we as birth workers have to deal with. Because when you lose a mother or when you lose a baby, you know, there's shame, there's guilt, there's anger, there's, there's, you're, you're scared. Um, and we have to go right on to the next client. And, and, and there's a lot of, a lot of, medical world has nowhere to turn for that sort of thing. I mean, the industrialized medical world really doesn't have uh, a system of mentoring like you offer um, to people in our world. So, um, but we all need to take care of our mental health uh, as well, which is part of the reason, again, everybody's asking me, well, why are you on sabbatical? Why now? And it's, you know, I've, I've been doing, I've been on call for 40 years and, and I, love birthing, but I will tell you that I think it was the pandemic and the lockdown issues and stuff and the divisiveness that occurred between people, even in my own office space, you know, getting mad at us because we weren't wearing masks. We were making our clients wearing masks and we weren't getting vaccinated. They were all upset about that, the people that I share space with. And it, it just sort of, it just, it fizzled. My passion, my passion fizzled. Yeah. And I need to reclaim that. So yeah. I'm working yeah. on it in my own way. And hopefully it works out. Um, I have two more real quick uh, uplifting stories, which I think is a good way to end. Okay, so do one and then I have another in between and then you can end with the last oh, one. Oh, good. Okay. That. All right. So this one's really short. Um, I have to go on to uh, off the screen here for a second. Uh, this is from uh, Dania. And um, she's a licensed midwife. And she says, Dear Dr. Stu, I just wanted to reach out and tell you thank you. I'm a home birth midwife in Chico, California. I took your breach class in Reading in June. I have been attending birth since 2004 and have done other breach workshops and even assisted and was primary for a breach delivery over the years. However, your class explained the maneuvers of breach delivery so well, and I felt like it solidified my knowledge and confidence should I be presented with a surprise breach? I was really inspired after the class. Honestly, I took the class just because you were giving it, not feeling like I needed a breach class that much. But I was wrong. Anyway, last week I had a surprise breach at home. I swear oh it God. wasn't. 
I swear it wasn't planned. <laughs> I felt so confident and calm about the delivery and it was a beautiful, very straightforward, upright breach delivery. I witnessed all the cardinal movements of the breach and it was an awesome experience. The baby had Apgars of 10. Just an incredibly smooth delivery. I wish it had been filmed. So do I, actually. Mm -hmm. um, this was a prime and so inspiring to witness. I was blown away by the experience and how cool it was as a kind of hands-on continuation of your class. I really appreciate what you do and the way you explain things. And I know I felt more confident in that birth because of the class. Thank you so much. And please keep doing what you're doing. It's so valuable. Thanks again, Danya. So I didn't, uh, I, I didn't say that just to uh, promote the class, but there's so much in there that's important for people to just understand that this it is just simple. I mean, the, the, there are cardinal movements and that, and that just knowing them is going to prepare you to be calm and to, and, and to still have the marvel and wonder at what birth can be and what, how beautiful it can be. Uh, even in a situation which in a hospital would be essentially like people running around, like their heads were cut off doing all kinds of crazy things to get that baby out by cesarean before it fell out vaginally. So, um, yeah, th these are important letters. And I, and, uh, you know, again, I, I highly recommend uh, Breach Without Borders as well, but God, any birth worker who doesn't know Breach, at least enough to help in a surprise situation, isn't a birth worker. You're not a birth worker. Yeah, that's why, that's why midwives learn, because we know that there's a possibility that we could be surprised. So I, I love that she just took the class and then had a surprise breach. And to me, that's like a God shot. Like that was just meant to be. You know, I was thinking about something, Stu, in relationship to like some of the letters that you've been getting lately about talking about hearing us in their head or you through the class in their head when they're in the middle of, of needing skills. And, uh, you know, the traditional midwifery project that I'm working on, the Bridge Midwives, is really about like uh, reinstating that sitting at the feet of elders and storytelling. And I was thinking about like, you know, when we had that resuscitation that we had to do together, that Alex, my one of my mentors and friends, was in my head, the stories that she had told me. And I, I think that in a lot of ways, the stories that we hear from people, wise people and our elders, you know, our teachers, so to speak, um, are the things that in the moment, those that's what comes into the brain, not the bookwork that you like, learned it's it's you know if you if you had the benefit of having that experience when you were doing your clinical work under supervision you know what a gift but that doesn't always happen that way sometimes you've heard about it someone else told you a story and then therefore then there you are and you're like oh this is the story that Stu told you know so that goes back to you know how we yeah. used to learn stories are like songs right yeah. you put you put words to so to music you remember the words because of the music and right. it's the same thing stories are like paintings or pictures that that imprint on your brain far more than reading something in a, in a textbook and when we get these letters bliss um you know first of all i want to i want to honor and and give my greatest respect to people who take the time out of their day after something like that happens to sit down and write us a letter to tell us yeah. that yeah. and i can imagine maybe only 10 percent of people are actually going to write us a letter so we're affecting a lot more people than we actually know because yeah. that, you know, I mean, every time that I do a resuscitation, I don't write Karen Strange a letter. You know? Right. It's true. 
<laughs> right. So I'm sure that every time people hear you, you what your wisdoms or or take my class or whatever else or listen to podcasts, and we affect them. They may think about it, but they're not going to take time out of their day to write a letter. So yeah, um, good we, point. Yeah, that's really good that we're affecting. So you want to go? Uh, you want to go dark again? Stu. <laughs> okay. So I got this letter. It says, "Hi, Bliss. I've been listening to Birthing Instincts for a little over a year." We had a really traumatic birth this February with my attempt to a HBA3C, so a vaginal birth after three cesareans. It was and still is traumatizing to me. Anyway, today I was driving and decided for whatever reason to click on the podcast despite months of not listening due to the birth. Uh, shit hit the fan for lack of better words. I had a long labor in an Airbnb just close enough to my midwife in Baltimore. So we are in Southern Maryland, where it's hard to find a CNM to support VBAC. I labored for about 30 hours. I lost count because early labor and active labor blurred together for me. I had a full rupture, probably at the Airbnb where we labored with my birth team. I do have a point in sharing. I transferred due to pain, despite it all God was in the details from my midwife advocating that EMT take me to John Hopkins rather than U of M, my doula encouraging me to transfer after many hours of pushing. She sensed in her spirit it was really time. Anyways, I did have a full rupture, hysterectomy, baby was rushed to the NICU for a therapeutic hypothermia, and it was the most traumatic experience. I was listening to the podcast and encouraging words near the end of the episode. Um, oh, she's mentioning, um, the episode that we did with Desi. This is, I think I might've cut it off a little bit, but she says, encouraging words near the end of the episode, validating her choices and advocating for herself. Everything you said that wasn't her case specific. I felt like you were talking right to me crying in the target parking lot. It felt like God using your words and voice to say, that he sees me and I wasn't wrong in my choices to pursue my dream birth, even though it went to hell. We are here when we could have not made it. My baby is six months and thriving. I probably messaged um, words before, but her story felt so parallel to my birth on many, not all details. And it touched me on a deeper level than other episodes by you and Dr. Stu. Just felt like sharing with you as your words and her and her story were so touching to me with, with love, Robin and baby. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the uncertainty of birth and the midwifery model accepts it. It's part of life. The medical model, it just wants to control everything and they don't accept the fact that there are outcomes that they can't prevent. And yet they have so many that, that, you know, that end up in the NICU or that end up with bad outcomes or whatever else. Um, it is, a, it is a fact of life. I mean, there's a risk to everything you do. Getting out of bed, eating a cookie, uh, driving your car, having a baby, of course, traveling. They all, all carry risks. You can't have perfect stories all the time. But just because you have something like that, you know, there are, there are obviously two schools of thought. One is that you want to be risk averse, you don't do anything, and then you live your life in a bubble. Uh, or you live your life and realize that you're going to fall down, you're going to break a bone, you're going to scrape your knee, and you're going to get up and you're going to have to move on from that and find all the things in life that that are there for you to enjoy, like just beautiful scenery, beautiful relationships, beautiful concerts and music and poetry and 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 movies and even even dumb TV shows. Um, 
thinks that, you know, there's all these things that, that in life, and I know that I could, I could, the list could go on forever. Mm-hmm. But you, 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 you want to be risk averse, but you don't want to be paralyzed by that sort of thing. And so there are going to be stories. We will, you know, if you practice long enough, you're going to lose a baby. Hopefully you'll never lose a mother, but that's going to happen too. And there's, you know, and despite being the best you can possibly be, that's going to happen. Absolutely. You know, you can't control everything in life. And I think the thing that I also, you know, would like to say is that if we, if we go back to talking about like that, we're, that our soul is on a journey, you know, my, my mentor calls it life school. Like, and you know, we, if you think about your experiences in life, although we would like to have all of the beautiful, fun stuff all the time, those harder experiences that we've walked through are the ones where we've grown the most. And so I think that we forget that, that there's beauty in all of it. Although sometimes it's harder and more difficult, it doesn't mean that there aren't things that come through on the other side that you can acknowledge as being beautiful and part of life because life does hold both of them, holds the light and the dark. And so the more that we can just accept that that is part of life, the less, for one, the less we're trying to control all of it and the less anxiety we have around it. And the more, like you were saying, the more things that you get to experience because you're not paralyzed by fear. So, Yeah. And find the beauty in every day um, yeah. in, simple, in simple things. Like yes. I woke up. What a great thing. <laughs> yeah. Or at the beginning of the podcast, you were listening to the dove, you know, like little things like that. Yeah, I was going to mention that at the end of the podcast that it was it was just a, a blessing to be serenaded by a morning dove through through yeah. much of the podcast, especially how appropriate that is. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I always thought the morning dove was spelled M O U R N I N G, huh. because it, it was a soulful sound, and I always thought it was a morning, like you're in mourning, <laughs> and I never really put it together that wait a minute, it's just it's just they they. They sing in the morning, like the other morning. So I love that though. I don't think I'll ever hear that sound again without thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that as a little kid that that's the thing that I thought about. Because we had that. them in, in Minnesota. We had them and, and uh, we heard them all the time. <laughs> um, right. Anyway, a last story. Okay. <laughs> but do, uh, do you remember, do you remember the woman who wrote us a couple of weeks ago? about how she was told she needed a C-section because she had a low-lying placenta. Yeah. Yeah, her name was Rebecca. So, yeah. you know, that her doctor was telling her, oh, she has to have a C-section because it's it's less than two centimeters. Or her midwife, <laughs> I think, was not going to take care of her because it was less than two centimeters. Well, I don't know how she figured it out, but she writes this. As I hit 41 weeks yesterday, I had a membrane sweep. It's interesting that they're worried about a low-lying placenta. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then they do a membrane sweep. At around yeah. 1 a.m., I was woken by an intense cramp and then a few more contractions. At 1.45, I started timing them, and they were five minutes apart. At 2.15, I called my midwife, and she told me to call back in half an hour to an hour. Okay. I don't know why you would say that to a patient, because what, are you going to fall back asleep for half an hour? You're actually going to do you any good? <laughs> I mean, when I know that someone's contracting like that, there's just I, I, there was just no way I could go back to bed. Yeah. I would just as soon go to their house, check in, set up, and then lie, go back to sleep on their couch or something like that. Anyway, by 3 a.m., they were two minutes apart, and she was on her way at, at 3.15. 
She got to our house at 3.30 and I felt the urge to push. Right when she got there, my water broke and at 3.47, (laughs) baby girl was born right into our entryway and into daddy's hands. Our photographer didn't make it in time for the birth, but she got some photos after. (laughs) No issues with my placenta or bleeding. I did not bleed. Did not bleed at all during labor, but after I delivered the placenta, they did give me a shot of Pitocin to be safe. Now, a comment on that. The kind of bleeding you're worried about from lower uterine segment bleeding isn't going to respond well to Pitocin anyway. But the fact is that they they planted seeds in this woman early on that she was going to have to have a C-section because she had low-lying placenta. And and she and it was never a problem. And if it had been a problem, she when she started bleeding, she would have had plenty of time to get to the hospital and do what they had to deal with. So baby girl was eight pounds, six ounces, 21 and a half inch. I don't know why people tell you how long babies are. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I, I never really understood that. Why do I care how long your baby is? But um, anyway, so she's very excited and very happy. And, and it's fun to hear a follow-up on a story where we, you and I gave advice on, on the idea that, that why are you worried about that? If you haven't had any bleeding during the pregnancy, and because it's an ultrasound finding, and we all know the accuracy of ultrasound, um, that's a Dr. Stu sarcastic thing, um, yes. at predicting things. So uh, why not? Let's see what happens. So she, she, so she did, and it worked, and it was great. Yeah, beautiful. Fast, beautiful delivery into the hands of her love. I love it. I think that podcasts where you and I just sit and share stories like that are... are <laughs> For me, really fun, even though it, yeah, it's like deep and emotional, but I like feeling emotional. It makes you feel alive. It's true. And it's important. It's but yeah, on that note, next week, I think we have uh, guests. We have the down to birth people. Uh, Trish and Cynthia are going to be with us next week. and We're going to mm-hmm. talk about red flags. So that should be interesting. Great. Anything else you want to add today? No, just thank you for being you. Well, you are the light, and uh, I'm not the dark, but I'm the humor, and uh, <laughs> you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's been great. And so for everybody listening, again, thanks so much. Uh, wherever you are, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night. We haven't said that in a while. I thought it would be appropriate. And thanks to the, um, again, to the Morning Dove for for serenading us. Yeah. All okay, good? well, have a good time where you are. Yeah, I'm I'm on the road for the next two months. So I'll I'll wherever I am next week, I don't know where I'll be. I'll be somewhere in Wyoming and I'll uh we'll meet up. Okay, see sweetheart. You, see you then. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 